good evening. Um, I'm Karen Kenner, the executive director of the Penn, and I want to welcome you to the fourth of our series in the book business in the 80s. Tonight's symposium was planned by the Authors' Rights Information Committee, which worked very hard last year on the pamphlet, which I believe is in, at the doorway, on um, rights, both contractual and other rights that authors should have and should ask for. Tonight's moderator, who's chairman of that committee, is Terry Schultz, who's assistant professor of journalism at NYU and author of Bittersweet, a book on loneliness, and Women Can Wait, a book about having children over 30. I'll let Terry do the panel to you. Thank you, Chris. Uh, thank you very much for uh, coming. Uh, we um, started the committee on what is really called the Office uh, Office Right to Information last year because we felt um, at Penn that there were many very important uh, authors uh, issues um, that were not contractual issues between authors and publishers that were increasingly creating an adversarial relationship between the writer and the editor. Um, and the committee was formed to try and um, specify where some of those problem areas were and see what anything could be done to improve communication. Um, this evening we are going to be discussing some of those areas which are um, in many cases impossible to write into contracts. Um, some areas perhaps should be written into contracts but are not at the present time. Um, we are going to be unorganized each person on the panel to address uh, himself or herself uh, to specific uh, information, uh, specific questions. Um, with the hope that the result of the evening will be to encourage a more active working relationship between writers and publishers. Uh, my assumption, which may prove to be false, but right now I'm assuming that a lot of people here um, are here because they perhaps have had some problem, problems in publishing, um, want to share those problems, want to know what other common problems are. So we will be talking about that. The way we uh, organize the evening right now is that um, we would like to first, um, as a panel, address the issues of editing, production, promotion, uh, first, as a block, and then we'll open it up for comments, criticisms, questions, uh, whatever from the audience, then go back as a panel to discuss subsidiary rights and royalty statements. Uh, I would like to introduce each panelist at this time. Uh, seated next to me is Tom Wallace, who uh, is editor-in-chief of Holt Reinhardt Winston, and has been there for 11 years, and is just now in the process uh, of going over to Simon & Schuster, where he uh, is, uh, will be a senior editor and vice president. At the center of the table, Lois Gould, uh, whose most recent uh, book is La, La Presidente, which is published this month by Linden Press, a, a subsidiary of Simon Schuster. In her uh, very career, she has also been uh, published by uh, McGraw Hill, Viking, Random House, uh, Simon Schuster, Roxanne Dunlap, and Daughters, which is a feminist press. 
Seated next to Lois is Jerry Chapin, who is a literary lawyer with the firm of Greenbaum, uh, Wolf, and Ernst, and is the co-author of a book uh, to be published on the rights uh, of authors and artists. Um, it's part of the ACLU series. Seated next to him is Bob Lesher, a literary agent um, who's with the, the Lesher Agency. And at the end of the table, J James Landis, who is vice president and editorial director of uh, William Morrow and publisher of Quill Paperbacks. Um, he is also himself the author of numerous books on uh, students. All right. What I would like to do is um, begin at the point where we are assuming on this panel that um, a contract has been signed, um, the negotiation process has been completed, um, the author has received as promised partial payment as agreed upon for the book, uh, and we are going to then address ourselves to those issues in sequence that seem to come up again and again in the editorial process. The first issue is uh, turning in the completed manuscript. What happens um, when the author, enthusiastic about the work that has been done, turns in his or her manuscript to the editor and hears nothing? <laughs> Tremulously tries to phone the editor and does not get a return phone call. Um, and this goes on and on and on. And I'm not talking about, say, a 30 day period, but in some cases this can go on for a couple of months, three months. Um, I'd like to address the first question to Tom Wallace, uh, which is uh, what, when this happens to an author, what is happening internally? Why doesn't the author hear from the editor? Um, I suspect the evening can only go up from this question. <laughs> I think this is a, I find myself in a rather invidious role, and I hope uh, what Terry has sort of dramatized for us really doesn't happen as often as some of the horror stories one hears. Um, I suspect, well, maybe to keep it on a light tone, I said I would tell one joke, but Someone that I'm sure many of you in this room know, Bud Truant, who's both a very funny man and a very, very serious writer and a good friend of a lot of people, when once asked about a former editor of his that he'd seen him recently and been talking to him, said no. Uh, a friend who asked him this question then said, Well, is there anything wrong with him or why haven't you seen him? And Bud said, Oh, that's all right. He's probably got a new book of mine that he's about to publish, and that's why we haven't been talking. I've <laughs> The reason I tell the story is Bud has told it so many times, I think it must be in public domain by now. Uh, but I think he exaggerates. Anyway, if the, what he has suggested or what this question suggests is true, it is obviously a problem. Uh, why does it happen? One thought that occurred to me when I saw the question was that well, publishing has changed in many ways. Uh, one of the changes is that in the old days, one wrote a manuscript one took it to a publishing house, and the publisher either liked it a great deal and offered a contract or didn't like it and didn't offer a contract. 
Now that still happens, but also we have a situation where a fairly large number of folks are commissioned on outlines. There's a great deal of enthusiasm when the outline is presented to the publishing firm, and the author gets a contract and goes to work. Um, the manuscript is handed in, and it may be that uh, there are some differences of opinion. The editor who reads the manuscript isn't sure. He or she may like a lot, a little bit, or not at all. Uh, since these uh, questions are very subjective of why one likes or doesn't like the manuscript, it is possible, throughout out here in consideration anyway, that uh, there are a couple of other readings going on in the house. Now again, I, my own personal feeling is that that's what Procedure should not take more than two, three weeks, maybe a month. Uh, the editor, who is the sponsoring editor of this book, should, I think, tell the author what's going on, or at least say, we'll, you know, we're considering the manuscript and we'll be back to you. Um, how long makes sense, or it's fair, or I don't know. Um, that's one scenario, I guess. Uh, another scenario. Um, might be, uh, and this happens, and I guess it's something that I'm in the middle of, editors move from house, occasionally move from one house to another. It is possible that the editor who commissioned that book, or was the so-called sponsoring editor, may have left. Uh, that should not cause a delay. Uh, I know uh, many years ago, Holt, we commissioned a book by Dee Brown, and it was going to be on genocide and what happened to American Indian in the 19th century. The book was signed up by one editor, Holt. He left, another editor edited the manuscript, and the third editor then uh, was working with Mr. Brown when the book was finally published. And that book sold three or four hundred thousand copies and was probably what one would term a stepchild. But it is true in publishing that there is some movement among the houses, and I think this could lead to this situation. Um, my own I hope I'm not being naive, but I hope that these uh, delays or this sort of silence uh, is the exception and not the rule. Uh, there may be other panelists who have other comments to make, but basically I would like to think that if there is a silence, it is because of uh, a lack of certainty on the part of the house that they're still committed to manuscript and that they are trying to make an intelligent decision. It is clear that the public doesn't really feel as enthusiastic about a book uh, he did a publisher when he signed it up. Then he probably shouldn't publish the book, and maybe this deliberation which is going on may end up in a verdict of no. Uh, but if it is no, it should be a speedy one. Uh, if it's yes, it should be speedy. So that my only thought is that I hope this doesn't happen, but if it does, um, I hope that there are serious deliberations going on in that producer's situation. Um, I, I just would like to ask you one follow-up question on that, which is, if there is uncertainty within the house, um, or there's movement of editors between houses, isn't it, in fact, a simple matter of courtesy to call, return a lot of call and say, I just, at this point, we don't have an answer because of ABC. Um, we will let you know we didn't give them all this time. I think the answer to that is very simple. Yes. Well, it's a matter of courtesy. Um, why doesn't it happen more frequently? <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe other people would like to answer that. I can only speak personally, and that I certainly would uh, answer as speedily and promptly, and it, it would be yes, no, or maybe, but certainly an author should accept that answer and should get it. Thank you. Thank you.
Um, all right. Uh, I'd like to follow this up with a question uh, to Lois, which is if an editor does not return the phone call, what are an author's options? Uh, Lois, you may have some experience in that field that I'd like to offer. Well, the first thing I wanted um, to say was that I think that that lack of courtesy that um, many publishers do have in relation to authors is really not a specific problem, but it's related to a general situation, which is that the author has become an outsider and not a treasured outsider to most publishers, <coughs> and is regarded as kind of the, the maverick child or or the slow technician who doesn't do the small part um, that he's asked to do or she is asked to do, um, which somehow holds up or creates a, a bottleneck in this wonderful school machine, which is the publishing house and its product, which is the book. And um, to, to fail to recognize that each of the distancing procedures that publishers have designed in order to preserve this uh, separation between them and this lack of, of caring and concern and identification with the work of the author as the thing to be cherished and, and, uh, and nurtured. But the, the business-like sense of we must keep our, our cloaks very secret from, from these outside people who wish constantly to intrude their childish whims uh, and egos uh, on, our, on our business day. They are calling to, to have their hands held. They are calling to find out how we work. And of course, if we tell them, it'll be all over town. And other authors will talk. And we are the professionals, and they are the children. And I think um, the one answer that I know about, call your agent um, or call a lawyer, uh, used to have perhaps more um, more practical, positive results than it can have now because I, I also think that the agent who deals in volume with the publishing house cannot afford to be the author's person entirely. Uh, the agent has become the publisher's person primarily. Uh, an agent may be selling 100 books that season or 200 or 500 and to call up an editor with whom relations have been carefully cultivated over a number of expensive lunches and say, my author is crying and standing along in phone booths in the street, please help. He's going to rattle the editor and the editor is going to say, this agent is also a childish, uh, <laughs> impulsive person and I don't want any more sub submissions from her. Uh, so, so that what seems to be a relic of the old days of alignment of interests um, has changed and the author is not privy to those changes as they occur, and it is, uh, it is very sobering to think that you really don't have a friend if the editor is not your friend and the agent is not your friend. Then you come to uh, what you do uh, about uh, lawsuits, and I think most, most authors don't get that far. There is no sense that you have either the, the recourse or the, or the means to make uh, a stand, you are alone. They are a house, or possibly a piece of a conglomerate. Whatever they are, it is a they, and it's very large. It seems extremely uh, solidified as a as a front. And you are uh, you are in a uh, in a lesser position and in a vulnerable position. And I think we, we uh, most of us don't recognize it. We like to think.
we are still a person whose work is being somehow handled by um, mechanical forces, and they feel the opposite way. We are not the important <coughs> uh, part of the process. They have, have changed that in their own minds, and that's the problem. I don't know how to deal with it. Lois, may I ask, how have you dealt with this particular situation? Has there ever risen for you? It's arisen uh, a number of, a number of times um, in my career. The first time I remember was with my first novel, which was submitted to an editor whom I had worked with before on a, a nonfiction book. And trembling and, and standing at the doorstep with my precious first 32 pages, I said, please call me Monday. And she said, absolutely, I'll call you Monday. It was Friday afternoon, and I never heard from her for six weeks. Um, and I was, you know, throwing myself off buildings in my mind and the rivers, and I had no agent, and I met someone who said you should have an agent, and I called the agent, and uh, the book subsequently ended up with another house in a matter of 48 hours, and that editor to whom I had given the book came back two or three days later and said, we are interested, and I said, sorry. And what I found out years later was that the whole publishing house was undergoing enormous upheaval and everybody had left and three people were in the Caribbean with car poisoning. And it didn't matter to me anymore. What mattered to me was that this woman would not call me and say, hey, there's nobody here for me to talk to. But that act of disloyalty to her house was unthinkable. Why should she call me when these were the people with whom she did business, and I was an outsider, and to whom she owed nothing, despite her assurances. And that was very sobering, but um, it's not the last time it's happened to me, and I, I think most people have terrible stories to tell, uh, which are human stories, and of course, human stories are in direct opposition to conglomerate stories. Um, I'd like to pass it along to Bob, um, uh, since Lois brought up the issue of can you assume that your agent is always representing your best interest in this kind of situation? I've been an agent for around 15 or 16 years and I was an editor for 11 years before that. And when I was an editor, I enjoyed working closely with authors and I enjoyed working with agents. And I can't recall any time in all of these years where I, first as an editor, ever felt that an agent wasn't doing his job or that he was more my ally than the author's. I, I have been moved on by agents in my time. Most of them I thought were kind of unreasonable. Uh, there was one wonderful woman who probably sold about five books a year. And I think I used to buy two of them. And I used to let her come up into the office every day and read the reviews because it was all she had to do. And I did it because I kind of liked her and I also was self-serving. I wanted to have other books from her and so on. But I, I, what you're saying, Lois, is uh, something outside my experience. Uh, and it makes me nervous. Uh, I, you're, you're really saying that agents have a conflict of interest and that they are beholden to the publishers with whom they deal, uh, rather than the authors with whom they serve. And perhaps that's true of some. Do you still have the same agent that you had when you started? Uh, 
Um, and it's certainly not necessarily something which a publisher would simply look at and say, oh, sure, fine, let's do that. Um, one thing which, given the, the bad press which attorneys generally get, I do want to point out, um, is that if you do have a relationship with an attorney and an agent or instead of an agent, um, and your attorney does not act for you as agent, i.e. the attorney is not interested in maintaining a selling relationship with the publishing house, um, the attorney doesn't have the same conflict of interest, even theoretical conflict of interest, whether it's real or not, that the agent might have. Um, so the attorney, in some ways, is more free to act for you without regard uh, to the consequences with respect to future books of yours or another Okay, I'd like to uh, move along to, um, let's assume the best of all possible worlds that the editor has returned your call, they love the manuscript, uh, but they want certain changes. In the editing process, a lot of things often break down. Um, and two issues seem to be coming up again and again in the editing process. One is the author's right to have an editor who will edit as opposed to what are said to known as an inquiring editor. Um, I would like to address this to uh, Jim Landis. I think maybe you have to choose uh, exactly what kind of editor you want, who you want your book sold to. Um, these days, most books that we get in are sent uh, many publishers at one time, and we're asked to, generally, to come up with uh, more money than the other publishers involved. And the beginning of the editorial process, quite often, it's a question of money. Um, and books are sold by many agents to editors whom they assume have uh, enough clout within the house to be able to facilitate the spending of money with some amount of ease in a short amount of time. So that for the most part, an editor's life is spent climbing some sort of hierarchy, depending on the house, to be in a position to, in a sense, spend money. Uh, if not with, with total freedom, with, with more ease than somebody else. Uh, and that is your, in a sense, acquiring editor. Now, if you're asking for a working editor at the same time, as you have an acquiring editor, it's possible that you run into, into some amount of conflict uh, because uh, the, the brilliant working editor may not, in fact, be the, the right kind of company man uh, to uh, be able to deal with, with the uh, amounts of money uh, necessary to buy your particular book. Uh, working editors are said to be uh, relatively uh, extinct anyway. We're passing on, we're, we're going to go from here to a, to another question which has to do with, 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 with editing itself. Uh, I would say that of course you have a right to a working editor. The question is, do you want a working editor? And what does it mean to have a working editor? Uh, can we pass on to the uh, Can we pass on to the other one? Because do you want to do you want to just introduce this by saying because um, I have something I wanted to bring up. Um, Jim asked whether an author in fact wants to write to a working editor, and what he means by that is what happens when you and your editor clash. 
in editorial changes that the editor wants to make. Um, and um, I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to precede that, though, by giving what may be a classic example of, I have a friend of mine with a book coming out in the fall dealing with a particular aspect of nuclear energy. Um, she was told when she submitted her manuscript that she needed some editorial changes made, and she made them, resubmitted the manuscript, and was told that now the book was fine, but the house refused to publish it unless she put in more pro-nuclear material. Um, she refused. She withdrew the manuscript and said it's going to be elsewhere, um, and uh, there was much back and forth, uh, communication, non-communication, etc. Noises about the house seeing her, etc. Were apparently changes in the house, and eventually the house position was reversed, and they said, "Fine, we love it the way it is. Give it back to us." And that's how the issue was settled. Now, this is an extreme, undoubtedly, example of the kind of conflict that can occur um, between editor and author when you're dealing with editorial changes in the manuscript. So, do you want, how hardworking do you want your working editor to be? Um, I'd like to, again, let Jim pick this up. Yeah, I assume the term really refers to the, to the working on the language of the book. Uh, the imposition of the point of view is rather stupid from a publisher's standpoint, and uh, I don't think putting in pro-nuclear or uh, anti-nuclear any matter of idea is particularly important. From my point of view, the working on a manuscript is is basically a, a line-by-line uh, combing of the, of the book for basically for expression. Uh, the editor has no business doing doing anything else in terms of, I think, in, in terms of, uh, of ideas. Um, but working, the working editor as well goes beyond the, the editing of the manuscript, um, and, that, and that is in the sales promotion, let's see, and, uh, and uh, related uh, commercial concerns. But so far as, as working on the manuscript is concerned, uh, I think the writer has, it sounds so, it sounds so easy to say. Now the writer should have the last word. The only the only time I feel that a publisher can insist on something, and it's only an insistence uh, in in pure terms, you can't make anybody do it, is when there are legal problems. Uh, there are times when when our lawyers tell us we cannot publish something the way it is, and, and we and we say that. Otherwise, my own way of working is to say something basically once. I may I may hammer it, but. Uh, but it's once. And if uh, somebody doesn't want to listen, then there's not enough time. Um, the, the amount of work done, um, a case some years ago, I actually counted because there were so many, and I think I had uh, 12,000 questions on a particular manuscript. It was a 1,200-page manuscript. It took seven days and seven nights to go through it, and the writer said, no, 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 no. Now, obviously, we didn't stop very long in each one. I said, how about this? He said, no, we passed on. So we went ahead and published the book, set it in type. And uh, when he got the galleys, he made virtually all the changes that we had talked about. It cost him $3,000 in author's alterations. And this goes back probably well, close to 10 years. Uh, so in today's terms, it would be perhaps $8,000 in AAs when, when, when the book cost, I think, $1,700 to set a type in the first place. 
to consult the author when the author asks. Um, is it an active consultation or is it a passive consultation? Let me just step back quickly, but I could have rebutted both Lois uh, and Jim on, on two points. But I think they're steadily because they come up in this question of the relationship of the publishing house to the author when it's a question of design jacket. I grew up in an age, not probably as young as most people in the room, certainly not older, when uh, publishers and editors and uh, authors were considered to be in a partnership. And I still believe that to be true. Um, and in most of it is an abstract situation. I hope, as most editors would say, sort of quoting and paraphrasing Ian Foster, that the question of my house or my author, I hope they would say, author comes first. Maybe only idealistic, but I know a lot of people who believe that's true and work by it. Uh, and a quick question answered Jim on the question of um, working at it and acquiring it. It's always been my belief that a good editor is one who both acquires manuscripts and works on them, which, as Jim said, is true at Morrow, not sure it's true at a lot of other houses. Um, again, this may be an ideal that we all work towards and maybe fall short. Now, if I am right about this question, it brings up an interesting point on design of the book and jacket. I think uh, a publisher would say there is a specialization of labor involved here. The author is a creative person and a writer, by definition, he or she is a business manager. The publisher is meant to be a publisher, which means not only being able to spot good manuscripts and good writers, but knowing what to do when one has found that good manuscript, as far as design, marketing, sales, etc. Um, and I think that the author should have that confidence that he or she has picked the right publisher, that that publisher will know how to best design, jacket, sell the book. Now, going back to this question of partnership, um, I first would like to say that just from the publisher's point of view in self-defense, we show sketches to authors. Let's say government, let's say uh, we're talking about a novel about the Civil War, a non-fiction book. I personally have never liked to be sure, and I'm not that knowledgeable in all fields, that the soldier described a portrait on that a jacket is wearing a Civil War uniform and not a poor war uniform. And uh, an author who is good and has been writing about his or her field will know the difference. Uh, the designer, the jacket, the fellow who's designed to do the jacket may do a beautiful design, may have the wrong uniform, and I'm sure that's happened. So from the point of view of a serious publisher wanting to make sure that that jacket uh, basically portrays the content and spirit of the book, the editor will go to the uh, author with a sketch of design. Now, there can be logistic problems in this. The question is, where is the author if you're dealing with a European author, an English author, or maybe even a West Coast author, there are schedules and there are uh, production schedules that have to be met. So what happens quite often is that Xerox may go off, not, the, the author may not see it for a week or two, um, jacket may be scheduled to make sure that when we have found both the author of a jacket or a jacket for the sales on, so wherever the priorities are. So that sometimes time does run short, and I think that an author is presented with a fait accompli. Uh, I don't know if that's good, but it happens. Uh, but I think that a publisher 
could himself be off, and now the question obviously comes up, what happens if there's a disagreement? And sometimes one has aesthetics, meaning head-on with marketing, packaging, whatever you want to call it. Uh, this is a, a very gray area, uh, and we were talking about it in the dinner before, what happens if it's a very strong, dramatic, dramatic uh, jacket, uh, title, author, image, very strong, uh, on the book, and we also looking at it that it's strong, it's dramatic. It's not my book. My book is far more subtle than that. Uh, what do you do? I mean, in, in, in many uh, contracts, the author is given a uh, right of consultation or approval, such approval not to be unreasonable with help. And the question then comes up, what is reasonable and what isn't? Is the spirit of the book which the author wrote and may have strong political Is it the publisher who said, we want to sell this book, and we have a strong jacket. And I respect that there are conflicts here. They obviously cannot be, I think, resolved by contract. One hopes they can be resolved by good, little compromise and discussion. I know it's hope many times we've gone through four, five, or six sketches, I suspect it's true in many other houses, because of this question of compromise and aesthetics versus marketability. But it is a very, um, it's a sort of fluid situation. Um, all right, I'm going to jump in. I'd like to take issue with a couple of things. Um, first of all, I, I really, I have heard in my publishing career um, the, the, the excuse, well, time doesn't allow it. Um, and uh, my feeling is that if there's an author on the West Coast, there is Air Express. Um, there are ways today to reach people and most people are very accessible in a very good way. And I think, again, it becomes a question of priority. Um, when you address the issue of compromise, it brings up for me as a writer the question of how much time do I have when I go into a negotiating situ situation with my publishers? Um, I have, as I see it, virtually none, um, especially if my books aren't making money, and the publisher has, has definitely cutting down of it. So I feel that there, you know, that really, you can't so easily dismiss the, the, the problems there by saying, well, we could compromise or hopefully things will work out. Um, because I do feel that when it comes down to the nitty-gritty, um, in essence, the publisher does have, uh, uh, you might have to answer that in the lowest, um, I think, to give your feelings on The question is, I know, not so much does the power, does the public have the power, does the public have the expertise? And I guess, again, uh, author and publisher, part of the partnership, technically, I think it's all unethical, is that uh, there's a common interest to sell that book. Uh, and I think that the publisher may say, uh, quite uh, um, from the point of view, the way people condition, we think this is a selling jacket. I, I just throw out, I think the selling jacket Again, a very um, nebulous term. I've seen that some of the back were really execrable, and I'm thinking of one, uh, a small Bella book, I won't say which one, but the book sold three or four hundred thousand copies, that must have been a pretty good jacket, and maybe one could put Mr. Bella's novels in brown and paper wrappers, and they would still sell. But uh, basically, a jacket, we focus on jacket, is meant to be a billboard, an advertisement, you're meant to go to a bookstore and be caught by this jacket. 
and if the jacket catches your eye and you buy the book, then I guess it is a special jacket, and the question of aesthetics, although important, may in this case be secondary to that, maybe lowest class, let me say that. Of course, the problem is you can never answer what made the book sell, and it may have had the worst jacket in the world and been a very good book, but um, the publisher is apt to think sometimes that it's the jacket that sold the book and not what was on the page. Still, uh, the, uh, the interesting, in, in, my, in my own experience, uh, the interesting that happened to me when I think it was my second book, I had written into the contract that I had right of refusal of the jacket, and I was very uh, flushed with my triumph, and I recall that I was called on the day that the final art was in the office of the editor, and I got this phone call saying, if you'd like to see your jacket, you're going to get into a taxi and down, and I thought I'd have to get rid of it at 3 o'clock. And I thought, uh, what would happen if I lived in Poughkeepsie or New Zealand? Uh, I would not have had that option. But I did get into the taxi, and I came down, and I hated it. And I said, now what? And they said, well, you don't really want to interfere with the production schedule, and it would cost X dollars, and you delay production six months, and do it even uh, out of business, and the book will never sell. Uh, you don't really hate it, do you? You don't really hate it a lot. And I said, yeah, I do sort of hate it a lot. And I went home and cried a little, and called my agent. And she said, let me talk to them. She called back the phone and said, Exaggerated, almost grotesquely, uh, 
the problems that occurred and how bad they did in the world. Ads in the Times, the 
sometimes that's it. When in fact, the ask perhaps serve a better purpose elsewhere, um, in more specific trade magazines or whatever, read by people who read this book. Um, do you consult authors and analysts? How should you? I guess, I guess this may figure may vary from past to past, but I think it varies that remarkably. Um, so I hope somewhere about four or five months before the book is published, uh, an author is asked to come in and see the publicity director, the advertising director, etc. Uh, and at that time, uh, I think it's a non-fiction book and they have some special interest. I always think that the advertising director knows that the author will know the audience in the market better than the publisher. Uh, we ask what are the special magazines, so what are the special areas that we should be conscious of and don't know about. We also ask for things such as mailing lists, if there's a book for them, maybe organizations will be interested in supporting the book or buying the book. So that we really do pick the author's brain. The question is not so much how is the money spent, is I think a larger question is how much money is spent. And that is a situation where I have always felt, and I think most publishers would say, uh, money is finite, and we have a hundred economic books, and we have budgets, as we all know, publishers are not immune to five-year plans and ten-year plans, and so much so much. Uh, and that the advertising director and the editor can be locked in, that there's only a finite amount of money to spend on this book. This is hard to explain to an author, because the author has written one book, and to her, to him, this is the most important book published that year. It certainly is. Published it, confronted with some very uh, practical problems. The publisher has to advertise and promote a whole list of books. And I think I've even had authors ask us to uh, be able to contribute to the advertising campaign because uh, they felt it was too small. I've always resisted that because well, I think it is a partnership. I think that. Partnership is really the publisher's responsibility to spend the money. And um, usually when we decide, uh, that we can only spend $5,000, only in the case of this, whether we spend five, ten, or fifteen thousand dollars, it probably would not affect the sales. I don't think the book has ever been made by advertising. I think advertising is a follow-up to other things that you think most people are feeling suspicious of advertising. I know I am clothing, shaving, things, etc. And probably for books too, that I realize that that ad is placed by the, one of the better word, producer of the product. And we do kind of take it with a grain of salt. I think that advertising for book is selling is a wonderful reminder. You know, you've read the reviews, you've seen it in bookstores, then you see the ad and you say, I didn't buy the book, I better go get it. I think uh, that um, this is something that one has to face as a fact of life. That spending a great deal of money does not necessarily produce a great deal of sales. And no book has sold less because it spent more money. The question is, will it have sold that much more? And then I think the publisher is has to rely on experience. And um, um, I think this is going to be very practical in a way that I certainly feel the author should be brought in to advise and tell the publisher the areas uh, that uh, the publisher should consider. One more 
question before we open to the audience. Uh, I'd like to address this to uh, Lois. What do you do when um, your publisher has told you that your book is coming out in September and then calls you a couple months later and says, well, we decided it would be a better Christmas book. Um, and maybe calls a little later and says, spring. Um, of course, that's just one of those questions that there isn't any real answer to because authors, again, are, are educated in the process of the painful process of being published, where all sorts of mythology strikes the ear. Uh, someone says, oh, July and August cannot possibly be a time in which are sold in the following year, you suddenly find that your book is on the July list, <laughs> raised with this, this uh, horror of the dead season, and of course by then the publisher is telling you that's when everyone buys books, uh, and what happens, of course, by the end of the experience is that you learn quickly to distrust all of these statements uh, of bland assurance that whatever it is that they've decided is the best for you, and it's again that sort of parental knowledgeable decision based on our years of experience, which may or may not work because by the following year there is another wisdom. It reminds me of dentists who will discover every year that you've been brushing your teeth wrong and should be up and down or should be in a circle, should be back and forth. And each time it's said as if none of the other previous dicta uh, has ever been pronounced or believe it. Um, I think that, that in the case of the writing and publishing of books, there are so many um, things for which the, the author is responsible in terms of delay because when they sign a contract, for instance, for a nonfiction book that's, that's topical and the author takes three or four years longer than was originally expected, it's sort of at the mercy of the publisher because the book may not be topical anymore. And, um, what is the full publisher to do with a book on this subject, which is no longer in the news, uh, but it isn't your fault because you've done the best job you can and it took longer to, to do a really first-rate uh, repertorial work or whatever it was. And I think you have to uh, trust them more than you know better. But uh, you have no choice. I knew that that was wrong, but there was nothing I could do about it. And I pleaded and I, I 
offered all kinds of inducements. And I said I would give them any other uh, a piece of any other subsidiary rights that might come along, and I teased them and tantalized them in interest on the part of TV networks and all sorts of things. And it took two years before they would let go to this paperback publisher. And as luck would have it, uh, in the course of publishing the trade paperback, but then conglomerate came along and um, canceled all the imprints and remained in the warehouse the second time around. But that's a horror story that I suppose is unusual, except it has to do with the timing. And timing at the moment is much more important than it used to be. Things change too quickly and in too big a way for these things to, uh, to take the time to time to do something. Jim, what happens in-house? Do you like production schedules and uh, this schedule publication months? Well, I have to say it's usually the writers, uh, especially these days. Publishers, publication of the book ties up so much money one way or another. The publishers, in fact, are probably over-eager to publish books uh, before their times. They don't, sometimes don't allow enough time between the date you get the finished book from the bindery and the date of publication, which should be probably eight weeks, uh, because book reviewers are interested in editors to assign books. But they don't, they, you want to begin to recruit some of your money because uh, publishers run almost completely on borrowed money, which is today 19 or 20 percent. Uh, so that there is a rush for the publication. Uh, I, I see it as the opposite. I, I don't really see many, I mean, there could be snafus in one department or another, but production departments, in my experience, and again, it's somewhat limited, uh, are quite efficient. Uh, they, they wait on the, uh, on the more creative process. You have deals with typesetters, we just lost our typesetter, and so we have to build another, oh, anywhere between two and four weeks into the schedule uh, for all our future books now, because uh, we had a terrific arrangement with someone who's gone out of business. Uh, but it's not in production. It's, uh, it's not proofreaders, and it's not uh, uh, copy editors particularly. Uh, it, it really, the delays happen early, not in, not in production, unless... I mean, you know what time, what, what things take. It's also technical. Indexes take three to four weeks. Page proofs get turned around a certain amount of time, often with us, in 16 days between galleys and, and uh, page proofs. Uh, all that's built in, we know that. Production doesn't take a time. Delays in uh, proofreading by the author. But mo mo most of the delays happen much sooner. And uh, I just don't, I, I, I think the stories are. I just don't see there being that. I think certainly when a publisher postpones a book, uh, it's usually for, for a reason that at least the publisher feels it's, uh, it's a good one. When you said before September or before we put it in the Christmas season, September is the very midst of the Christmas season. Uh, uh, when you have a big book for Christmas, you publish it in late August, September, and October. You don't publish it any later because we know bookstores don't open cartons of books that they receive in November and December. Uh, they have too many books. Uh, they have too many big books, so, so that for Christmas we publish. We publish in September. Uh, July and August, uh, uh, are, it depends on what you want. Uh, 
John Gardner always publishes novels on November 27th. Uh, John Updike liked to be published in December. That's usually a good reason for an unknown writer to publish in a, in a, in a relatively empty months, because uh, at least a novelist, uh, someone who can count, hopes to count on getting reviews because you want to be published with other people or not as many people are published. Uh, there's a, it's probably, there are other months that are worse than I would say. Uh, I mean, just for practical matters, although we can't always abide by it, probably January, February, which some people think are the greatest months, are the worst because uh, they're returning all the Christmas books. They're not interested in buying books. They have a lot of a lot of the bookstores have a lot of money problems, and the whole revolving credit business does not lend itself to a very good publication display in, in January and February. So uh, there, there are all kinds of theories. I tend to feel that the right book can basically be published at any time. There are certain books, certainly, that should be published in a season, and that's usually the Christmas season when it's a given kind of book. Otherwise, it doesn't much matter. We don't contribute to the failures of books knowingly to go back to what I said earlier about promotion and, and that sort of thing. Uh, you have to maybe address this later, but you have to decide what it is that disappoints you so much about the performance of publishers. Really, what, what, what is it, assuming that you don't, that they don't lose your manuscript and they don't fail to, to do this or that with, with you know, this notion of horror story memories, but in the normal course of publication, what finally is it that upsets so many writers? And is it really sales? I mean, and then how much is it money? Is it income? Do you expect to live off your writing? Uh, do you get upset when worse writers do live off the writing and you can't live off your writing? What is it that bothers everybody so much? And what is enough? Because we have a lot of our problems with our most successful writers. Uh, not, not with writers who make $2,500 <laughs> Uh, from a novel and write a novel every three years, and often don't expect really if they if they know what kind of book they're writing, expect much more. But with writers who make several hundred thousand dollars, not a good deal more each time, uh, and they're very unhappy. And we get it, uh, we, we get it from them quite a bit. Uh, I just throw that out in case anybody wants to talk about it. Okay, good. And that note, let's open it up. Um, the audience, and I'd like you to address your questions and comments with a few specific people. And we'll go back and talk about royalty things here at the Grammy Nights again. Yes. I don't think that you or those rules are conspiracy theorists, and I don't think that uh, the editors or the agents on the panel are plotting patriarchal monsters, but there is a dynamic going on here that isn't getting addressed, and I feel obnoxious saying it, because it seems to have been saying it at panel discussions for many years. Um, the books on the list are competing with one another. They're competing for money, for staff time, for promotion time, for the editor's time and attention. It seems to me until the authors admit this process is going on, that that's the publishing business, and educate ourselves about it, and until editors and publishers stop being afraid of letting authors know, yes, we do have other books, yes, many of them are going to be more successful than yours, yes, yours has a printing of 6,000 copies, and the 
used our printings of 60,000. We're just going to go on talking with one another and wondering what the trouble is. So could, could someone on the panel <laughs> you set it up pretty well. Yeah. No, what's the secret? My question is, what's the big secret? Why are the authors and publishers keeping this terrible secret from one another? It's very difficult to argue with, with a lot of reasons <coughs> what we're saying. I think that what we've done wrong tonight is to proceed beyond, to start at the wrong point. The point at which these things should really be exposed and discussed is that the first meeting when you find a publisher, that's the time when you should be probing uh, what he will do. You should be airing your expectations. And if you have expectations that he can't fulfill, he should say so. Now, obviously, there's a lot of unknown. Uh, there are a lot of unknown about the publisher. But I, I, can, I, I can cite these things or, or illustrate them a little better by specifics, even if they're not going to But several years ago, I had a, a, a representative of a wonderful writer, lively writer, and also a distinguished man. And it was a book of a critical nature on American history. And uh, the publisher that he had had turned it down. And I wasn't surprised. He'd never sold particularly. He had a, a reputation that outran his, his sales. And I liked the book immensely, but I also felt that it had a terrifically limited potential financially. And I conferred very openly about it with the author whose ally I felt I was. And I will say that he felt satisfied that I perceived what he was trying to do, and I recognized the virtues of what he conveyed and his insights. And I told him where I'd like to take the book, and I mentioned a particular house. So the house I mentioned was Canal. Uh, although I don't take a great many things there. And the editor I mentioned was Bob Gottlieb, although I don't sell many books to Bob Gottlieb, or to one reason or another. But I called Bob and I said, every time we talk, you say you want to see something that I'm really keen about. Well, I only represent what I'm keen about. But I sent him that manuscript. And he called me back the next day. And he said, what are you trying to do? And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, I love it, but we can't sell 4,000 copies. And I said, I know it. And the author knew it. And he said, in that case, we'll do it. And they, they sold around 4,500 copies, maybe 5,000 copies. Now, you could argue back and say that this is a self-fulfilling uh, situation. And I think that's true very often in publishing. I think publishing can always be defined as momentum. What you set out to achieve is more or less what you might tend to achieve. And if you have limited expectations, you, you're not going to surpass them. Although it's also true that the first printing on uh, See Around Us by Rachel Carson was only 4,000 copies. There, uh, but I, I do think that the openness is a very initial stage, and this involves a thorough discussion of whether you're going to see the jacket copy, and, and the fact that you want to see the jacket that you care about the jacket, that you care about the design of the book, that you care how you're portrayed, you don't care about this, and you don't care about that. The more fully you understand it, and of course, the more fully those understandings can be embedded in the agreement, if you can, the happier your relationship will be.
fair solution to this or live in a series of ways that the contract can be changed. I agree with you that it doesn't seem fair that if the author is going to be responsible for the um, costs of any suit or any uh, recovery, that the author wouldn't have the right to choose who's going to represent the uh, book in any claim. From a publisher's perspective, um, the author may not have the resources to pay for the kind of attorney that the publisher feels would be necessary. Um, and the publisher is invariably sued along with the author. And if the author doesn't have the resources to pay whatever judgment, it's going to come out of the publisher's pocket. Uh, for the, and the publisher will then turn around and go to the author. But for that reason, publishers um, oftentimes refuse uh, to give an author the right to approve or choose counsel. One way of compromising um, is to include in, in, an, in uh, an indemnification clause something which says that the, the counsel will be uh, chosen by one with the approval not to be unreasonably withheld of the other. Um, another is that if you feel that the publisher is um, not going to choose somebody that you feel comfortable with, to insist on the right to have your own counsel represent you, notwithstanding uh, the publisher's counsel, and in some way try to split the fee. Um, that way you get two attorneys working on one case, which sometimes doesn't work well and sometimes works fabulously. Um, you may be able to work out something where the main, in a situation like that, where the main um, defense would be handled by the, the office attorney, for example, and the publisher's attorney will supervise just to make sure that the publisher's interests are um, being protected. Yes, sir. Yes. Do you see any changes in contracts in this area, or is it still very rigid? Um, I don't see any change in the form contracts, and that, that's another one of those things where um, if you were negotiating back from the form contract, certainly something to try to get in, and even if you make the request and you don't get the request granted as as made, uh, you may be able to reach some sort of compromise. Yes, uh, this is Mr. Chasen and possibly Mr. Wallace. Um, there is a, a clause in many contracts that goes, the publisher shall publish the work at its own expense in such form, style, and manner, and at such price as it may be provided. Recently, a publisher use this clause to justify the changing of the title of my the book of mine without my consent. And it was only under threat of a lawsuit and pressure by a great lawyer named Charles Rembar that we were able to reinstate my title. What does this clause mean? It seems to be a giveaway of all rights, at least it was so interpreted in, in my particular case. Um, legal opinion and possibly opinion uh, from a publisher's standpoint because it, it is standard, it appears I've looked through, I find out about the six book contracts. I think it, excuse me, I think, I think it refers to the physical book. That's how we interpret it. Would you say title was part of the physical book or part of the manuscript submitted by God? Title. The title is Was that invoked? Yes, it was invoked to justify a change of that. And, and Retracted. Mm -hmm. I don't think it refers to, to that. 
Was there anything in the contract which also said something about you having the right to approve editorial changes? No, there was no, the point was there was no editorial clause. But I, I wanted to make my question more general and not apply it, bring up my own case. I was just curious it's, because that would be. Well, it was a very complicated, yeah. It was a very complicated case and got, got very, very rough. But um, this, this clause does appear. And it has been used, um, I'm told by people of the Authors Guild and so on, to um, claim all kinds of rights, editorial changes, title changes, not just jacket designs and flat copies, and even denying authors' choice of photographs of themselves. <laughs> I, I would just like to hear what people in the publishing business and people do think it really means. And don't think that it really means um, that they can change the title or um, the editorial content of the book. And given that um, most clauses, well, most contracts also say that the publisher has the right to correct style and usage. And then they say the publisher shall have the right to publish in such style or manner, etc. You've got that same word, and that's one of those legal games where if it's in one place it means one thing, and it's almost presumed to mean the same thing if it's in another place, even when the contract is such that it's nonsense for it to mean that. I think I, I probably would agree with uh, Jerry and Jim. I think the clause, well, like many clauses in contracts, we have to realize not only do editors not draft those contracts, publishers <coughs> don't even draft them, they usually cancel. And I've been in another situation sitting down with the editorial staff saying it's time to revise our contracts, we've got complaints, send it to our lawyers, and got back a contract that was so much horrific and horrendously said, let's stick with this sort of model before that we have. I don't think uh, this works in the many clauses and contracts, which are really not very clear, or cogent, or intelligible. I think it's how they apply. It seems to me, in this case, it was badly applied. Again, I would throw a title, though. It's also true of the jacket. I don't think any really good publisher would want an author to feel that his or her book was published in a way with the wrong title and the wrong jacket. And although a publisher might urge a different title or a different jacket, I think it first came to show, and this is not a legal matter. But the author said, I can't live with it. I know that as an editor, I would agree with the author, even though I thought the author might be wrong, because it is the author's book. And if you publish a book and you can't show it to your friends that you feel the jacket is that horrible, or you throw the title breaks on your ear, then this is a situation that shouldn't exist. And uh, I think that any serious publisher would make that statement. Statement. 
the statement was that this particular manuscript had been finished 10 years ago, but was not submitted to publication for caution, for safety reasons. The safety reasons were that certain characters had not yet been vaporized. Or shall we say, concerns the author particularly is a phrase that was used in the letter that came with the manuscript in the return chapters of the sample, which indicates the great impression that the material made on the publisher and on the editor. And that is why the concern of plagiarism annoys me. It's stated that although Joey, the main character, Joey's story surges forth with lots of energy and includes events and conditions of social and historical significance. Its rather roughly hewn style makes it unsuitable for our list. Uh, is your question addressed to the problem of plagiarism? Is your question addressed to the problem of possibilities of plagiarism in view of the fact that it was not copyrighted? Uh, all right. After the passage of the Copyright Amendment Act in 1976 and it became effective in 1978, once word is put to paper or any other way an author works, if, it's, if an author dictates into a machine, once you've got it in tangible form, it's copyrighted. The additional protection of registering something with the Copyright Office is just that. It's additional protection. It gets you added goodies if there ever were to be a lawsuit. It gets you statutory damages. It'll get you attorney's fees, perhaps, if the judge thinks that's a good thing to give you. Um, but the material itself is copyrighted. If you were to find that the publisher to whom you submitted this material was coming out with a book based upon your book, and you were able to prove um, that what they were publishing was, in fact, an infringement of your material, which is not in itself an easy thing. Um, you would be able to uh, stop publication, you would be able to recover damages, etc. But the, the, your, your presumption that the material was not copyrighted um, is invalid. It, it absolutely was from the time you submitted it. Okay, we have time for one more question. We're going to go on. Yes. How common is rejection of manuscript? Legally, technically, granting those rights to the first publisher, i.e., the rejecting publisher. 
um, if you've got the cloud, again, we get to the if you've got the cloud, you get the right to um, sell the manuscript <laughs> to a third-party publisher and either not pay back the advance at all or only pay it back out of uh, proceeds which you would receive from a third-party publisher to whom you might sell the work. Um, sometimes publishers will go halfway towards that and will say, we'll give you um, six months, a year, uh, within which to sell the work, but at the end of that period of time, if you haven't sold the work, we still want the advance back. Um, those are the kinds of things which you can look. Basically, you can't force, and you probably wouldn't want to force, any publisher to publish a work if they didn't want to. They just wouldn't handle it the way you would want to publish. So the question then becomes, make sure that you're protected to do something else with it. So can anyone else address how common uh, phenomenon that is? How common is the manuscript under contract totally rejected? Yeah, because you're describing mm -hmm. the Honestly, I don't think there is uh, a statistical answer. I, we all know that books are rejected for right or wrong reasons. Um, I don't think there is an answer that I want to uh, quantify that this type of thing. I'd like to just uh, go on to the final portion of the program and break it at the end of for audience participation is hopefully time. Um, the other things we wanted to, to address here were subsidiary rights. Uh, first, pre-publication subsidiary rights uh, held by the House. That is, paperback rights, book club sales uh, rights. Uh, and the question is, uh, to what extent uh, do, do authors have a say, or should they have a say, about where such rights are sold? or license. And I think the same question also applies to post-publication rights, film, TV, second serial rights. Um, as it stands now, authors often, often are not consulted at all. And I have a lot to address that. Again, this is a bit of a question of what kind of leverage you can apply and what kind of option you have. Magazine rights or 
do anything without the author's final approval. The publisher also ought to be keeping the author informed of those things, and in my experience, most publishers do. Uh, one of the things we think every author should be wary of and protect himself against in advance is any sale of rights controlled by the publisher that involve the alteration of the text. Um, this happens later after publication on perhaps some segment of a book is used in an anthology uh, or in syndicated paper or uh, something like that. And uh, those things so often involve editing that the author doesn't see that we, we take special we take special pains to suggest that an author requires that any sale of the author's material of a subsidiary licensee involving an altered text be absolutely subject to the approval of the author. I think all of these things are achievable for the asking. Statements cannot make much more head or tail out of an agent and author. 
what we do is we ask, the author can't understand, we ask them to come to see the world in the world. And usually explanations are given and they usually quite satisfactory. I do think that the world is taken to find out what comes from and unreadable. And this is a lot of information. Many of them do not have cumulative income, just showing the income of that period. I think an author should know who's one of the guests. You know, two years ago, you did pretty well with this book, and then you see $2.03. Two years later, I know what you're saying.
expected it to be at the time, and I think they begin to go out pretty much in April 1st and October 1st. I don't know, but in interest, uh, we all want interest on in anything that's, uh, that's uh, withheld for a certain amount of time. I suppose that one could make a case, if a, if a check is due on May 1st and you don't get it until May 2nd, or you don't get it until November, uh, or whenever, that you could say, uh, uh, I'm most interested, damn it, my lawyer's going to see that I get it, and you might get it. Um, you open up that kind of thing, and uh, you start collecting interest in that way, and, and you're going to have to deal, uh, those of you who are writers, with interest collected on outstanding advances for, for books that are late. Uh, and I think it's not worth, I don't think it's worth it. We are, we are, there's an awful lot of publishers' money out for, for a great deal of time beyond when it is uh, supposed to be our plan to be out. And at least in my experience, I've never said, don't pay your books a month late, a year late, we have some books that are seven years late. We want, where, where's our interest in that money? Where's our interest? Uh, we don't do it, and I, I just don't think it's worth it. In, in, in this kind of, in, in the very difficult business relationship uh, that writers and publishers have to start introducing notions. Inevitably work both ways to cause uh, even more enmity than the houses. Just on one question on why the world is taking this go out 90 days after the world is cleared, it's also the question of return. And if a book is published in October or November, many books are or September or October, the returns really don't come in returns, not in the good sense of the word, I'm afraid, but returns in the negative sense. Beginning to turn up in February and March, and therefore, this is a fact that we all have to live with, and publisher is concerned about an overpayment uh, because uh, it closes the world, it's taken to what 20,000 copies out from the store, and by uh, February 15th, the March 1st, and only 10,000 in the store. There's another fact, and then of course, the preparation of world statements that some of the bigger houses in their textbook and trade publications. Um, there's something like two or three or four thousand one of these things going out at any one period, or even more, if you're talking about off what breaks or a or what have you. There's a lot of work that's that rather than the just physical labor of producing them, then all of this is question of returns, which is really relevant. Um, I just wanted to answer something that was just said about um, lightning the money due, uh, which is held by the publishing house for its own uses and its own investment and um, making the author then liable for paying interest on an advance and somehow it seems to me that in the normal business relationship with people who do work or where they collect a certain amount of money for materials and then they promise delivery of the job at such and such a time, um, usually that doesn't come down to um, suing them for interest feels that this is like a loan to the writer, but in fact, uh, it isn't. It is payment in advance for work to be done, and can be looked at in precisely the same way as any other business relationship where a certain amount is paid up front, and then a certain amount paid as the job continues. And I don't think uh, that in general business practices, they do collect interest in case the work is delayed for 
why or a straight pen. The author ought to both write the author definitely more than the publisher. Now, in profit, we talk about P9, we talk about profit and loss. It's also true that publishers have different ways of planning their overhead, warehousing, direct and indirect overhead, and that is distinguished from profit. Uh, one, I don't know the answer. Uh, do publishers do they not show PL statements to authors? I think there's far fewer secrets to hide in publishing than a lot of people seem to be suggesting tonight. Is there a policy that your house has on this? I mean, well, can you answer that? Uh, there is no policy. And I know I have gone over with authors. I show the cost for the PPME, printing paper and mining is, and what the plant cost is, what the overhead is, and what the anticipated profit for the publisher is. The author obviously is a better position to his own or her own profit because you know if it's on the X number of copies, we know the royalty, we have a rough guess, even though we were talking about the various discounts before, sometimes the royalty isn't full. Nonetheless, the author can pretty well compute his or her own profit. I suspect one answer, and I have certainly gone over this, and I suspect Jim has the most other answers that was offered. Uh, one thing is that if publisher's profit is never clear, you have this whole question of returns. Uh, you may sell 150,000 copies, it looks very successful, the book, the sixth printing goes out just as the fifth printing comes back, and you may end up literally having 10,000 copies in your warehouse at $2 a copy and lose $20,000 you hadn't anticipated three months before. So it's very difficult at any given time in the publishing procedure to say this is our profit after a year or two or three, it's very clear. Usually back then the author doesn't care. Uh, you know, and so when on month of publication or two or three months after, and I'm really not trying to be amazing, there is no hard answer that one can give. But I really want to make this point very seriously. The publishers do look for 10% of net profit and very rarely realize that. And it's 8% or 7% or if you remain to 5 or 10,000 copies, it's a lot less. Uh, so that I think on this end of the Author certainly should look at his or her own profit. The publisher's profit, I think the author should know, it's not a secret, how what these costs are that the book is incurring and another cost. Um, and I don't think it should be a secret to tell you the truth. I think maybe, from what I'm hearing, maybe there are too many secrets. They don't seem to be secrets to me. Uh, they're sometimes complicated facts and figures. I think the more secrets that Remain secrets, the more uh, possible there is restriction and misunderstanding and even animosity. Uh, so I think the fewer secrets, the better we're all going to be. Okay, and one more. All right, uh, why don't we rock any solutions? But we certainly have a lot of interesting questions. Thank you all.